one day a traveling salesman had checked into a hotel and after he got done checking in, he walked by the hotel bar and he just, he looked in and he saw sitting at a table two men and a dog playing poker. And so he thought it was a little odd. So he, he walked in and, and he just watched it for a few minutes and he was kind of staring over the dog and saw the dog's hand and saw that the dog was actually doing well and presumed that he was probably winning the game. And so after a few minutes of watching, he said, that's one smart dog. And one of the men said, he's not that smart. Every time he gets a good hand, he just wags his tail. That's the definition of joy in one sense. You could say joy is the wagging of one's tail. Um, This morning, we're going to complete a series that we began a little while ago, for those of you who haven't been here, on emotions. And we've looked at all the different kinds of emotions from content to surprise uh, to anger. Um, And this morning, we're going to look at the emotion of joy. We started this series because we recognize that emotions are very important, powerful things. In fact, they are a gift given to us from God because they help us to not only know what's true intellectually, but to experience it physically. Uh, from our blood pressure right down to our bones, uh, from our nerve endings to the beginnings of our digestive system, we feel anger, we feel joy, we feel fear. God has given us emotions that we would not only know what's true, but that we would be able to experience, to be able to feel. He gave us emotions because the God we worship is an emotional God. Because as we look at the scriptures, we see that God gets angry. We see that God rejoices. We see that that God is sorrowful and sad at times. We see that all the emotions that we have without distortions come to us from him because we were created in his image. And that's what makes it important. It is a sign of our connection to God. Uh, This morning, as we look at these emotions, I want to just, this final emotion, I want to just remind you one of the things that we talked about, and that is the fact that while emotions reveal the truth of what we believe, they're not the rule for how we should behave. While we might feel something as true, that doesn't mean it is true. It just means that's what we feel, and what we feel, it reveals what we believe to be true, even though, in reality, it might not necessarily be the rule for how we should behave. And that's important, because we live in a culture today that most people live by their emotions. Most people will do what they feel to be true without really stepping back and asking, is this really true? 
is what I'm feeling a right direction from my mind, from what is real, or is it a distortion? Because we talked about the fact that we're fallen people. We are people who are not perfect. And because we're not perfect, we can distort what's true in what we think and in what we feel. And so one of the powerful things we've talked about when we talked about emotions is that, yeah, we need to know what's going on inside of us. We need to feel what's going on inside of us so that we can express it. And expressing it, we can then measure it. Measuring it by the ultimate standard, by God's word, and say, is this true? Is this real? Or is this a distortion? Because that's a, that's a powerful thing. Knowing what's real and true can keep you out of a lot of trouble and bring you closer to God. This morning, we're going to look at the final emotion, joy. Um, as I've been putting together this series, I, I purposely saved this to the last because I knew the last message was going to be on Easter. And particularly this past Monday, Thursday, as we came together and just looked at um, Jesus' time in the garden with his disciples, when he was betrayed, that time when he went through incredible agony and, and, and we're told that he, he, he sweat what were like tears of, uh, of blood or drops of blood. We looked at the emotion of fear. And what we saw was that when it comes to dealing with fear, the key is the sovereignty of God over the emotions of men or over the fear of men. In other words, what we saw is that when you pray and say, God, your will be done, we can trust God. We can cast our fears upon him because he cares for us. And so it makes sense that, yeah, when we move towards the crucifixion, you move to fear. But then when you move from the resurrection, you move to joy. Because that's what the resurrection is about. Joy is a powerful thing. You might not know it. Um, in fact, let me, let me just kind of back up. Let me give you a definition of joy. Um, it's an intense feeling of happiness over something unusual, incomprehensible, and, near, and nearly, it should say, an overwhelming good. Hang on to that definition in your mind because we're going to explore that a little bit. Now, here's something interesting you might not know. There was a study done uh, recently in Britain on the subject of joy. Are you ready for this? In the study, they found that people, out of all the emotions, experienced joy above all the other emotions. In fact, they found that 58% of people said that they experienced Joy, now let me just make sure I get this number right, 468 times a year, which is nine times a week. 
What do you think the second emotion was that they experienced? No, sadness. Now, they said that the trigger for the joy they felt in the majority of the times was that it was triggered or the catalyst for it was love. The catalyst for sorrow was watching the evening news. That makes sense. Joy is considered, and I love this term, to be an all-in emotion. In fact, uh, the great theologian and philosopher C.S. Lewis said this, this moment contains all the moments. That in the moment of joy, all the moments just seem to be contained. It becomes so intense, such an intense feeling of happiness. In joy and sorrow, you see the contrast. I love the story of what is considered to be the miserable motorist. Um, there was a guy in a small town, and he was just known by everybody to just be as miserable as miserable can be. And he made no problem making it known to everyone. Well, one day he was traveling down the road and he was rushing and going somewhere he didn't want to go and grumbling to himself about that. And um, after a few minutes, he sees the blue lights going on behind him. And so he starts grumbling even more and he pulls over. And the police officer recognizes the car and he knows who's in it. In fact, he can hear him complaining right to his cruiser. And so as he gets out, he decides, you know, I'm not going to let this guy get to me. I'm not going to let him steal my joy. I'm going to try to find something positive to contribute to this person's life. And so he walks up and he, he talks to him and he, and he writes him a ticket for speeding. And he hands the ticket to him and the man says to him, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And then taken back from it, wasn't sure what to say. And he, he just said, well, keep it. And when you get four of them, you can turn it in for a bicycle. <laughs> this morning, I want to look at joy through the scriptures. Because in Luke's account of the resurrection of Christ, we see a powerful definition of joy and a powerful way to live. Um, we're going to look at an interesting chapter. It's chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. And here's what makes it interesting. In chapter 24, Luke gives us three different appearances of Jesus. He dedicates the chapter, because in chapter 23, we, we see Jesus in the crucifixion. Chapter 24, we see three different stories of Jesus' resurrection. The first story um, is when Joanna and the two Marys rush to the tomb uh, to put spices on the body, and when they get there, there's no body. In fact, there are uh, two angels that meet them and tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. That why are you looking 
for the Son of God amongst the dead. Matthew's gospel tells us that as they left and and went to run and tell the disciples, Jesus appeared to them. And so they ran back to the disciples and Peter, when he got wind of it, ran to the tomb and didn't see Jesus, but saw the open tomb and Jesus' grave clothes lying on the ground. That's the first story. Second story, one of my favorites, um, is the two men on the Emmaus Road. These are two men who have left Jerusalem and they are just downhearted. They're downhearted because they had probably witnessed the crucifixion. And so after a day or two, three, they left, but they didn't know about the resurrection. And so as they were just kind of walking and talking about this, Jesus appears to them as a traveler and they don't recognize him. And he speaks to them and reveals the scriptures to them. And then finally they have a meal together and as he breaks the bread and hands it to them, they recognize who it is. And their hearts just burn inside of them. And so they turn around and they rush back to Jerusalem to make known to the disciples what's happened. That brings us to the third story that we're going to look at. Beginning in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now I want you to just imagine this, because it's almost like a, a scene of, you know, some people around the water cooler, you know, and, and they're talking about all the stuff that's been going on and all the rumors they've heard, and like, you know, kind of like detectives are thinking, trying to put the pieces together to figure out, you know, what's going on, what happened to Jesus, and, and maybe someone stole the body, or maybe he did rise again, or maybe people think he... And as they're doing this, he appears right by them and he says to them peace be with you now I don't know about you but I would flip out I mean walk through the walls whatever he did I mean all of a sudden you're talking about him and you're trying to piece together and he just says hey how you doing peace well look what we read they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. I've never seen a ghost. If I did, I would be startled and frightened. It seems like an appropriate emotion to feel at the time. I mean, not Casper the ghost. There were no ghost busters. It was, I mean, you're looking, and here's a guy you know who you know is dead, and now he's standing in front of you. And you think he's a ghost. What do you do with that? How does that end well? Verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled? I mean, really? But he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you rise in in your minds? Uh, Why do doubts rise in your minds? Now, why was he saying that? I mean, 
Of course, he knew that they were shaken by this. But he said this to them because he had said over and over again that the Son of Man would be crucified and buried and would rise up on the third day. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And so he offers them assurance. There are people who believed back in Jesus' day and even to this day that, that it really wasn't, that Jesus really wasn't a man. He was kind of a spirit. And so that's why he could pull off death because he, he can't kill a spirit. Well, we know that Jesus was God, fully God, but he was also fully man. And this is Jesus saying, hey, look, touch me. I'm no ghost. I'm not just some spirit. Next slide. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. They didn't believe it because of joy and amazement. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they didn't believe. It would be the same thing if I showed up at your door as a representative of the lottery and say, said to you, you just won $50 million. Yeah, I mean, it isn't that you don't believe, you just can't believe it. It isn't that you don't want to believe. But it's such an intensity. Remember the definition, let's go back to the definition if we can real quick. An intense feeling of happiness over something unusual, incomprehensible, in Nearly in Sound familiar? That's joy. Yeah, they struggled with an unbelief, and it's a different type of unbelief. It's an unbelief that comes from an intense feeling of joy by something unusual, incomprehensible, a nearly overwhelming good. Here's the takeaway that I want to share with you this morning. The resurrection provides, or the resurrection is, the ultimate foundation for a life of celebration. The resurrection is the ultimate foundation for the life, for a life of celebration. You see, you and I can experience joy. We can experience an intense feeling of happiness. Sure, if I won $50 million in the lottery, I promise you I wouldn't look somber. I, and, and I know there are times I look somber. I remember when my daughter was in, I don't know, probably fifth grade or something. And she says, you know, you scare all my friends. 
and I said, I said, honey, what are you talking about? She says, they all think you're angry. And I, and I said, well, I'm not, I'm not angry. You know that. Why do they think that? You never smile. And I said, I am smiling. <laughs> if I won $50 million, oh, you would see joy. <laughs> no one would say that's not joy. The resurrection is the foundation for, I don't care if it's $50 million, because you know what? $50 million can go very, very quickly. And I don't remember how much he got, but I remember, if you remember the name Rodney King during the LA riots, won a huge payday against the LA Police Department, and it was gone in a few years. I knew a gentleman who had been left six hundred and fifty thousand dollars and in one year he blew it on cocaine in one year yeah we're all wise enough to know money doesn't last it can't stop cancer it doesn't have eyes to see the truck coming around the corner The ultimate foundation for joy is not money, it's not popularity, it's not possessions, it's not passion. All of those things can contain joy, but none of them can sustain joy. Only the resurrection can do that. Because only the resurrection is an object of proof that says you are loved. It's the proof that God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Because God loved his people. And even when they didn't love him and turned away from him, he didn't stop loving them. I can find joy when, when I know no one seems to like me or to love me and yet know I play to an audience of one and God's love will never leave me. Number two, It's a sign that you matter. That you have significance. Christ died for you because you matter. And now, as a recipient of the love of Christ and the resurrection, you don't get to walk around as if you don't matter. You matter. Christ died for you for a reason. Not just to wait to go to heaven, but to put you in play into the world. To be a light in the darkness. To be a smile amidst all of the frowns. To be a person who can speak words of hope and encouragement when there doesn't seem to be anyone around. Because your hope and your encouragement isn't based 
upon money or a job or the way you look. It's based upon the fact that God loves you and you matter. It's the ultimate foundation because you're forgiven. I don't have to walk around wondering if I die tomorrow, if I die today, will I go to heaven? I mean, you know, I, I did all this stuff this past week and um, maybe God didn't see it, but if he did, I'm probably in big trouble. No. That's the thing that always blows my mind. Christ forgave me the minute I gave my life to him, but he continues to forgive me because his ultimate plan for me is a good plan. And see, that's the fourth one. God has a plan for you. And let me put it another way. God is for you. The resurrection assures me that God is for me every single day. Every single day he is shaping me and moving me in the direction he wants me to go. Christ didn't die for nothing. Number five, you have a future. Jesus said to his disciples on the night that they were gathered together for the Last Supper, and he said to them that he was going to leave them, and they all flipped out because they had, they had hitched their wagons to him. They had left their jobs for him. And he says to them, I'm going to leave you, but I go to prepare a place for you with my heavenly Father. In my house, in my mansion, there are many rooms and I go to prepare yours, and I will come back for you. You have a future. We've talked about this before a little while ago when we were talking about the doctrine of heaven. One of the exciting things about heaven is if I keep looking forward to what's in front of me, I don't have to get bogged down by the junk around me. But if I don't realize that there is a better future to come, I will get bogged down in the junk around me. And life is filled with junk. Last. You can be free from fear because the resurrection erases fear. Every fear when you break it down is the fear of death. Every fear. And the resurrection wipes away death. There's no reason to fear, as we said this past Thursday. The sovereignty of God over the fear of men. When we trust in God's sovereignty, fear disappears. There's a story of a woman who was living in an area where there were earthquakes all the time, and they were predicting that a great earthquake was coming and all the inhabitants of the area were running around and scurrying and were upset and worried and crying. And this one woman just had perfect calm. And they said to her, how can you be so peaceful 
at a time like this. And she said to them, because I rejoice in a God who is able to shake things up. She wasn't worried about an end because she knew she had a future and she didn't have to fear it. Because fear is gone in the rest. That's why the resurrection, it is the ultimate foundation for a life of celebration. Pleasure won't do it. Money won't do it. Pride in position. None of those things last. Many, a famous person in history has bemoaned their misery after having it all. Ernest Hemingway was a person who was known for, as he put it, drinking the long natural drink of wine. He was a person who was known for living his life as if he was all in. He had written classic works, and you know some of them, Man of the Sea, The Old Man of the Sea. Um, he was um, picked for a Nobel Prize at one point. He was an uh, ambulance driver uh, in the war. He was a person who was friends with everyone from bullfighters to politicians. He was a guy who was considered to be a guy who, who knew joy, who knew what it meant to be all in, to, to experience the best of the world. And yet that long drink of life, that long sip of wine, ran out because on one bright sunny day, he shot himself. Because none of it could bring joy to him. The only thing that can bring joy is knowing that God loves you, that you matter, that you have a future, that you fit, that good things are always coming because God never forsakes. Uh, there was a man who was a, a cobbler and he was known in his town for just being a happy guy, always smiling and singing, waving at people when they walked by. People would long to just stop and talk to him just to kind of suck in some of the energy. There was this bank, banker who was known for just the opposite. He wasn't happy, he was usually miserable and, and he could find the bad side in every situation. And so when he'd walk by the cobbler, he'd get irritated with them. He just couldn't figure out how a person in a world like this could be so happy. After a while, it began to be a little infectious to him. And so one day he stopped and he talked to him. And he said, you know, where does this joy come from? He said, well, when I was in the war, I almost, I almost lost my life. And when I recovered, I thought about all the good things I have, my wife, my family, and, and my friends, and the town that I live in. And, and I just was filled with joy, and, and I promised myself that I wouldn't let go of it. 
And the banker was impressed. In fact, wanting to reward the man, he said to him, do cobblers make much money? And he said, no, not really. He goes, in fact, today where things are tough, people don't even buy new shoes. All I make my money is just repairing shoes. And so the guy gave him 350 pieces of gold. And at first the man wouldn't take it. He said, no, no, I want you to have it. I appreciate the way you live. And so he took it and he ran home and he, and he buried it in the ground. And as every day went by, he got consumed and worried about the gold being stolen or, or maybe he'd forget over time where he put it. And so he'd have to rush home every day and check on it. And over time, people began to notice that he didn't smile as much. He didn't sing as much. He didn't wave as much. Finally, one day, the cobbler found the banker and he gave him back the 350 pieces of gold. And he said, I can't have this. It steals my joy away. We are called to be very careful with what we invest our lives in and where we seek our joy from. And the resurrection is a reminder to us. It is the ultimate foundation of joy. It is the ultimate foundation of celebration. And when you try to replace it with anything else, it will leave you empty. But when you hang on to it, you will be amazed. You will be filled with so much joy at times, it will become unbelievable for you to know that God loves you so much. That Christ died on a cross for you. That he bore the separation from his father to become his father's enemy for our sake to wear our sins and be put to death so he could rise again that we could. When you look at your life in those lights, how can you not feel joy? And so this Easter, as you go home and celebrate, know what you're celebrating. Understand it in the very fiber of your being. And go out every day and build joy in your life. And you do it in three ways. One, be grateful for everything you have. Every day, just be grateful for what God has given you and you'll feel joy. Number two, be generous. Ultimate joy comes not by what I get, but by what I give. And what I give for the glory of God. Cheap people never have joy. Have you ever seen a cheap, happy person? I have never seen a cheap, happy person. I have seen cheap, miserable people who make everybody else miserable. 
I knew a guy who didn't give his workers sick time. And I, I, and I we're talking to him, and he was, he was a millionaire easily by that point. He had a, he, it didn't matter anymore. He had plenty of money. I said, why don't you give him sick time? He said, if I give it to him, they'll use it. Well, that's logical. All he could see was every dime. That's when you live, but you're dead. Lastly, you want to build joy in your life? Have great goals. Be willing to take big risks. Make sure it's for the glory of God and not for yourself or else you'll have a big fall. Because no matter what you do for God's glory, even if you think it doesn't work out, it worked out. Could you demonstrate it to the world how far one person's willing to go for God's glory? I can feel the joy in just saying those three things. Let's join our hearts in prayer.